the leopard just sat there, froze, didn't move a muscle looking at us. Then suddenly it dropped down on all fours on its belly and it crept along the ditch and out of sight. And everyone just looked at each other in disbelief thinking, wow, was that real what we just saw? You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me, nothing like a dog's growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realize that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen and could these cats even be naturalizing without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 17 of Big Cat Conversations. And I'm pleased to say this is another theme on farming. In this show, we'll hear from two different farmers about their experiences of big cats on and around their land. First, we're going to hear from John in Wiltshire, and I had a quick chat with him last time I called in to check cameras on his farm. John originally agreed to have cameras on his land when his family met me at a rural show a few years back. John explained then about the few times he'd seen a black panther on his land, including really close up. John has never detected bad vibes from the cat, and in fact there may be more than one, and we'll hear what he has to say in a moment. Since cameras have gone up on that land, there have been two sightings, one in a part of the land without cameras, which has now got cameras on it as a result, and one in an open barn where we did have a camera. That camera might have caught it, but the batteries had run down, and that was really frustrating, of course, but that's a big lesson learnt for me. For our second guest, Neil, I was able to have a longer chat on the phone recently. Neil has also got cameras on his land, so we'll hear all about that later. Well, I'm sitting at the kitchen table in a farm in Wiltshire, and I'm very grateful to John and his family for hosting me this afternoon. And this is a farm where I've had cameras up for a few years, and as usual, when the cameras go up, the cats are not seen anymore, or rarely seen anymore. It's become a bit of a pattern, but actually cats have been seen on this farm since my cameras have been up, but at a different location of the farm so we've actually chased the cats around and put the cameras up at that location and I'm very grateful to John for being with me and John is going to talk all about his experience of seeing cats up close a few times and the case has been ongoing for about 10 years and we'll hear all about it now from John. John thank you for joining us on Big Cat Conversations. Welcome. You're welcome Rick. It's an organic farm here it's about 60 point something hectares and I've seen I have seen the cat twice now, since all the time we've been filming. The last time we saw it, it was actually in the hay bale, on, on, actually on a hay bale. And I disturbed it, and it, well, I was more frightened, I don't know who frightened the cat or me, but <laughs> it disappeared anyway. <laughs> that was the one where you had to jump into the tractor cab, was it? Yes, that one, yeah. I wasn't sure what it was going to do. Yeah. How close did it get to you, John? Oh, within about 10 foot, I should imagine. It wouldn't, yeah, about 10 feet. Yeah, and it was just... Doing that, it was passing you to get out of the way, was it? It wasn't going for you? It wasn't going for me, no, but I think I took it by surprise. I just wandered into the barn to get some hay, and there it was, on a bale. Yeah, so resting. Well, resting, yeah. yeah. It wasn't ratting in the back. No, it wasn't ratting. It was just let, it, let him look like a dog would be. Just let down. Yes. And it was there. 
and your son had seen one previously in this is a big sort of open Dutch barn, isn't it, where you yeah. store the the big sort of cotton reel hay bales? Yeah. And what do you reckon it is? It going in there for vantage and resting? I think it's basically just going in to rest. Um, yeah. It's that's all it is really. So but it's, it's got a nice view. Up it's got on. a nice view, yeah. And it can yeah. See when it your son saw it, John, what was uh, they were? It was doing the same, wasn't it? it was looking out, resting. Yes, it was looking out. And it was it was where he was there, but it never went for him. It never made no sound. There was no sound at all coming from it, which is a bit surprising, really. Yes, and you jumped into the tractor cab, but you don't carry a mobile phone around, so you wouldn't have been able to get a photo no, easily. No. no. Can we go back to the first one, the previous one, and then we'll have the description. So the first one you saw out in the fields, didn't out you? Out in the field, that one, yeah. Yeah, could you tell us about that? It was about as long as, we say, Labrador or something like that. The tail wasn't excessively long. It's about a foot and a half long. Okay. But it was just, it wasn't rushing around, it was just maundering across the field and Mind his own business, really, I suppose. Yeah. Was it aware of you? <laughs> Not that time, no. It no. never saw me. Because I was sort of upwind of it, and it never, it never smelt me or nothing. So yes. I just, saw it. I just stayed still, and it let it wander off down the field. Can you tell us about the colour and the form and the way it was moving? It was black. If It was creeping along as though it was stalking, but I don't think it was. But that's what it appeared to be doing. Mm. But you never know with those, I mean, what they're actually up to. What about the head and the uh, length of body and the thickness of the the uh, legs? Anything like that? Anything stand out to you? The head seemed a bit quite wide, really. So it wasn't a dog. You can tell it wasn't a dog straight away. Hmm. But um, I suppose it's about four foot long in length, roughly. Yeah, then plus the tail. And plus the tail. Yes, hmm. yeah. It's interesting that you said about both of them that you've seen have not had as long a tail, I would say, as usually reported by witnesses. But no. Do so, you feel... They were the same cats that you've seen, or do you think there might have been different ones? Job to tell, but I, I'm convinced myself there's a pair here somewhere. Yeah, okay. Um, because our local gamekeeper um, is wood not far away from us, and he's he's actually seen them in there. He's seen two together. He's seen two. Yeah. Yeah. And, John, when, when I turn up here, um, it's quite different from a lot of the locations I go into southwest England in terms of landscape features and landscape characteristics. It's quite open and low-lying. There's not a lot of cover, it strikes me, but, of course, there may be, you know, within a few miles. But why do you think a cat has got a territory on your land? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know what could be caused it. I mean, it's white. Well, I, I could have something to do with it. We've got no rabbits at all this side of the farm. Mm. And we haven't had any for at least four or five years. Yeah. So it could be could be just that, or coincidence, yeah. or something, I don't know. Yeah, it's got prey, though, hasn't it? We're, oh, we're yeah. On the cameras, we get yeah. plenty of roe deer, don't we? If yeah. Sometimes muntjac, no fallow. We get foxes and badgers. Not many badgers, but occasionally badgers. But the organic aspect is interesting, because you do get... Because it's wet pasture, isn't it? You get curlews, which are we beautiful to hear. Yeah. That haunting sort of piping noise they mm. make. I mean, cats may take ground-nesting birds sometimes, of course. It's possible, because this year... We had the curlews, they, they came in in the spring, but they never reared any young, and they were gone early. So whether it's something had the eggs or had the chicks, or, we're not sure. Okay. Something yeah. happened anyway. Yeah, I mean, foxes can do that, of course, can't they? That's foxes some, can, yeah. Yeah, I know. An issue as well, yeah. I notice um, it's very rich in wildlife because the camera in the hedgerow is set off far more than cameras in hedgerows on other farms, and I think that's just because... Mm. You've just got very wildlife-rich land and plenty of life in the hedgerows and plenty of birds and mm. bats at night and everything, setting off the cameras all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of bats actually around here, so they could be setting the cameras off as well. Yeah, and so are you, those hedgerows, you're cutting them every two, every other year, is that right? Every other year, some of them. Um, roadside ones, yes, they're cut every year. Okay. But every yeah. other year on the inner fields ones. Yeah, yeah. And now, also, I just remembered, your wife has seen the cat with a friend dog walking she was the person who saw it in the other part of the farm when we set the cameras up on, on this bit here we're looking out on and you think that was going over the because i said why on earth is it in that big open field and you pointed out well there's the railway line and there's a crossing point on <laughs> so that's what you reckon is happening yeah you? it's coming across the line yeah um because next door a rear pheasants mm-hmm. so it could be taking a few of the pheasants from over there oh, okay the that's the other side of the line that's just that's the other side of the line yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So we've got a camera that's that's a good one that's working in that field where your wife has seen it. 
Has your wife seen it in the barn as well? No, she hasn't seen it in the barn. She only saw it across the other fields, the other side of the motorway. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Now, you've got beef bullocks, beef cattle. Yeah, um, we're a suckler herd, really. And I okay. just rear the calves to nine months and sell them on. Yeah. Do you ever notice any sort of edgy behaviour? Or do you think they probably wouldn't even be bothered by a cat around? I don't think they'd be bothered with it. I have seen them upset a couple of times. But they it could have been something, nothing really. I'm not sure what it was. Mm. But they were, I mean, going back a week ago, I went down checking the night, and they were all out in the yard, which is unusual. Mm. So something frightened them that night. It could have been something about, we're not sure. Yes. I don't yeah. look around, but I couldn't see anything. No, okay. I mean, this... Um location the barn is really just a few meters from your kitchen door where you go out to to your equipment and everything how do you feel as a family about a potentially big predator big large carnivore being around at night or any time of day when you're leaving the farmhouse and going out into the farmyard it doesn't worry me i think as long as you don't go too close to them they won't attack you Mm. it's just if you cornered it or done something stupid then it'd be a different story (laughs) but um no, I, I've seen it and I just keep white birth of it now. Does it make you more alert? Does it does it influence you in any way, John? Or do you just think, if I see it, I see it. Otherwise, I'm just getting on with my work and I life. I just get on it? with the work and it's normal and just ignore If I do see it, well, I see it. But I don't especially looking for it, no. It doesn't worry the family? that no, no, not a bit. Not a bit. And from past conversations with you, I think you, you have implied that you feel... It knows you, you know, it, it, it sort of works around you and because it visits here. So is that right? Is that fair to say? that? I reckon so, yeah. I think it just comes in basically to rest and that's it, really. But, yeah. Uh, it doesn't worry me. Whereas nobody else, we're, we're used to it now. So yeah. <laughs> if we see it, we see it. Yeah, sure. In fact, I remember the, the, um, the camera we've got covering the barn now, we had a fox climb up vertically three heights worth of those huge cotton reel hay bales and that was that was impressive he, he then realized he got to the top and he, he couldn't go any further he had to retreat and climb down but it shows you what a fox can do climbing vertically and you have a smaller feral cat don't you um, yeah for a feral cat yeah yeah which of course may be vulnerable if it's well, yes it's, could be dinner <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, so, and your interest in helping out, I mean, it's terrific. We can only really get more and better evidence by working with farmers like we're doing with yourself. And so, I mean, you're keen to try and get evidence, not that we'd want to tell the world and splash it all over the tabloids if we did, but, yeah, you're keen to try and yeah, find would, out more, aren't you? Yeah, I want to find out more about them. It's probably all come about people released some years ago and they've just bred, and that's what's mm. happened to them, I think. But um, but you'd like to look it in the eyes on a photo. Oh, you'd like to look it, yeah, say I've actually... Got on photograph, yeah. That's what yeah. I'd like to do. Yeah, sure. What about, John, if somebody said, right, we must eradicate the cats round here um, and we'd like to have permission to set up traps and then take them away and destroy them or whatever. How, what would you feel if that was... Definitely not, because they're, <laughs> if they're keeping the vermin down, that's all well and good. Okay. <laughs> More of the better, I say. So as long as they're... Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I, I did think that's how you felt about it. But that's because they're behaving themselves, isn't it? They're I mean, behaving themselves. You would have presumably a different view if you knew that they were a real nuisance and a problem. I think I'd be worried if I had sheep. Um, mm. But being those big, strong calves, I mean, you'll only let them out when they get older, mm. which I don't think would be a problem. Yes. They wouldn't tackle something that big. Yeah, and you'd be concerned for fellow farmers and neighbouring farmers if not, it's not a big sheep area, though, is it? Um, but if you knew a fellow farmer who was having problems with sheep, you would obviously be concerned. And, and oh, we'd be concerned then, yeah. yeah. But yeah. we've no sheep in the area, so it's not mm. not really a problem at the moment. Yeah. So you do see it as a type of vermin control? Yeah, as, as I a, do. Yeah, and something which makes a healthier ecosystem, mm. which is what they, in theory... It just be seems doing. to balance everything out because it doesn't seem to be attacking the birds. I suppose it could be feeding on rabbits or it could be feeding on deer. Or I'm not sure what it's feeding on. It's feeding and on some something. fishing lakes not far away. Yes, some fishing lakes, yeah. It might be interested in those sometimes as well. Yeah. yeah. What do you think more generally, nationally, how do you feel about the fact that there seems to be perhaps even a breeding population, albeit quite a low one, in the country? How do you feel about that, John? I don't think they're going to cause a problem, really. Not like the wild boar are. They, they are causing a problem, but the cats, no. I can't see them being a problem. Mm. I think it'd be just long as you know, long as they're not bothering anybody, mm. let them alone. Yes, but it's important to understand about them. Yeah, it is really yes. 
the cameras may help, hopefully, and, and people like you having the cameras on your land is part of that agenda, which is terrific. Yeah. yeah. Just can't wait till we actually get one on camera. Yeah. So we'll just wait and see patience and see what pays off. Well, you've actually, the irony is that we're putting another camera out now, and we're putting that out because you've had somebody, a trespasser on the land, which is, I know, annoys you greatly, and... The irony is it may well catch the cat rather than the trespasser, or both, if we're lucky. So, Well, that's what we're hoping. These trespassers keep coming on, and uh, the cat might even chase them off. You never know. <laughs> but um, In fact, we did, John, get poachers, didn't we, on your on the cameras? Yes, we did. Four years ago, yeah. 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 They looked pretty heavy-duty poachers. I would have liked to bump into them at night. But how do you feel about that? Is that? Well, that's, you know, at least the cameras are showing you what's... Yes, they're showing up ending there, but... Um, yeah. I just basically got there to say, if you do by chance see the cat, we do. So it's, yeah. it's there for you know, both two reasons, really. Yeah, splendid. Well, John, yeah, I sincerely hope we get something on camera as well to reward us for our partnership on the cameras over these years. But as you know, it, the same thing has happened on a lot of other land and property. You know, it's, it does seem that the cameras are... I think you need, we need to be very lucky and we need lots of them. And we need the cat to come back regularly. Maybe it doesn't seem to be coming back as regularly as it has in the past, perhaps. But we'll... Anyway, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Very grateful for you coming on. Big That's fine, Rick. That's fine. Thanks, John. All okay. the best. Thank you. words of the week for this episode are prey switching and this is about a predator switching from one main type of prey to another. We use this in the context of big cats especially when sheep get targeted by what we suspect is a big cat. Prey switching is a main theme for our discussion in part two of this episode coming up as we consider why a big cat in the Bodmin area would suddenly take out a ewe when it would appear to be usually living off natural game, like deer and rabbits, because sheep casualties in the general area thankfully seem to be rare. Just for now, I'm going to select three factors which might be influencing a big cat's focus onto sheep predation and away from natural prey. First, from the several cases of sheep predation I've been asked to visit or discuss with farmers in the past, in most of these, the sheep were untreated, so had no chemical spray or dip used, so they would have had no strong smell to put off the culprit predator. And all of that was discussed in episode 5, the last time we met some sheep farmers on this podcast series. And secondly, when we consider the type of cat which might misbehave and go for sheep, it could be a young, inexperienced cat, especially a tom especially if it's separated from its mother while still learning its trade as an ambush predator and being less confident in homing onto prey such as deer. And third, it could be that the preferred natural prey for a cat such as deer or rabbits have become more elusive for some reason in an area or less available for some reason and therefore this forces the cat to look for a lesser preference like sheep but something readily available. This could be due to herd deer having moved out of the area, or rabbit populations declining in the area. Or it could be because very cold weather is meaning that rabbits keep below ground more at that time of the year. As usual, with all these points I am speculating of course, and leaving them out for your consideration. We're a long way from learning all about our secretive large cats. So there we go, those are our words of the week for this episode, Prey Switching. Okay, well, for our second guest in this episode, we are not on location, I'm afraid. I'm talking down the line on a cold January evening to Neil, who's based in East Cornwall. And Neil, glad to catch up with you at long last. We've been emailing for a while and I've heard about all your interest. I know you had an incident on your farm a couple of months ago that we're going to hear about in a minute. But thank you for joining us. And can we start by just hearing generally about your farming operations? Evening, Rick. We are on the edge of Bodmin Moor. We farm predominantly sheep, about 100 ewes. The farm, about 100 acres. It's a north-facing river valley. We've got quite a belt of forestry come woodland. And then above that, it goes straight out to the open moor. 
it's a very traditional sort of Cornish farm. So 100 acres would comprise sort of 30 fields, a lot of scrubland, a lot of copses, uh, keep a few pigs and horses as well. Small scale, not intensive at all, really. It sounds wonderful. Yeah, very traditional. Yeah, I'm definitely threatening a visit, if you don't mind. I'll help you check your trail cameras one time, perhaps. And we'll talk about the trail cameras mm. uh, later on in the, in the discussion, if you don't mind. But um, no, no, first of all, I gather that you've had quite a long-term interest in big cats. So what was the sort of thing which triggered your initial interest? I've always been interested in all nature and that, really. I moved down here to Cornwall when I was about 16, pretty much to go to college. Moved down from Hertfordshire. When I was at college, one of my good friends there, they were having a lot of trouble at the time, farm just outside Bodmin, and they were having significant trouble with cat predation, and they were adamant it couldn't be anything else. And like I say, I, I was interested in nature anyway, and it sort of got me thinking, could it be real? Could it not be real? They had various experts there. They took hair samples. They had footprints. They had carcasses, which were unmistakable big cat kills. And my interest was sort of sparked from there, really. I was saying to you before we came on air that from my feedback of the Ministry of Agriculture, MAF as it was at the time, investigation in and around Bodmin when they were invited by a local MP to do so and had a rather uh, modest budget to do any work, they were actually shown the door by some farmers who I heard did have things going on their land that these farmers just didn't want the Ministry looking into their land and finding anything which might have had consequences. So I think that suited both parties ironically farmers didn't want the issue investigated fully and the ministry were a bit concerned about what they might do if they found anything anyway so it is funny how the tactics work isn't it on both sides i think farmers are always a bit dubious about having especially authorities poking around their farms yeah if you think about the subsidy payments and that and the possible losses they could have you know is it worth having people there investigating what could be or what couldn't be when you don't know what else they're casting their eye over i suppose Yes, yes, you just don't know the consequences of a visit. Yeah. No. Okay, and so you, in your area, have chatted to various people and heard local gossip on the grapevine. Can you feed back some of the stories about Big Cat reports you've heard from local people and from fellow farmers? Well, when we took on the ground, we started off, we took on about 35 acres here in about 2010, and we started keeping sheep, it was the following year or the year after, and... Basically, the first year we'd kept sheep, we had lambs in the April and ran, obviously, the lambs through into the autumn when they're sort of getting fat. And I'd separated these lambs off into a separate field. And one of those lambs was killed. It was killed in such a manner that it couldn't have been anything else but a cat kill. And it was killed during the day. My wife, partner at the time, as she was wife now, had seen those sheep at about 12 o'clock lunchtime-ish and I'd come back to see them later on in the afternoon and as soon as you walk down the lane, the field was on the right-hand side, you could see there was a dead sheep in there. Walked over to investigate and it was literally like it had been skinned and sort of turned inside out. The carcass was clean, absolutely clean as a whistle, just like completely like it had been skinned off in an abattoir or whatever. And from then on, having an interest in it anyway, I asked a lot of the local farmers if they had seen anything and spoke to the chap that farmed the ground before us. And he basically went on to say, oh, well, he'd seen definitely a black leopard. Our ground runs up to the edge of the moor. Well, when he had the ground, he had the moorland ground as well. And he basically said, well, he was walking back from the moor and saw what he thought was a dog cross the track in front of him. Quite a windy day, he said, so he didn't really, well, he didn't make too much of it. He just thought it was one of the neighbour's dogs walking across. Carried on down the track to the point where it had crossed, and there's actually a stream running parallel with the path. And when he got to the crossing part of the stream, the dog, as he thought it was, was there drinking from the stream. And it was only when he actually spoke that it spun and realised he was there, and he could see then that it was a cat, and, it, and he said it bared his teeth at him and jumped the stream and just wandered off. Mm. He was sort of of the opinion, he was an old fella, like, you know, he'd, he'd farmed here for years, and he was of the opinion, well, he kept it quiet, I think he said, for a fortnight. He didn't tell anyone what he had seen. There was no uncertainty whatsoever in his mind what was there. 
And he said, well, back when they took the farm on, they cleared a lot of that moorland ground up there. They cleared a lot of the gorse and the ferns and everything. He said it was before the time where you'd go in, there were heavy tractors and big machinery clearing it. You were up there clearing by hand. And he said then, he said he'd seen lynx up there and young lynx up there as well. Gosh. Quite an interesting chat to have with him. He never had any impacts that he knew about on his sheep. We've been the first people that have actually kept sheep on this ground. Before us, okay. he, he was purely cattle. So we're on the edge of Bodmin Moor, so you have got that moorland farmer mentality. I'm quite lucky. Our ground is in one block, so I can easily check my animals twice a day. I do notice little changes, little impacts. Whereas if yeah. you're farming vast acreages, sometimes you're lucky if you, especially on the edge of the moor, you're probably lucky if you do walk across the same bit of ground. You know, maybe once in a week, you'll see your stock almost from range, if that makes sense. And you could lose a few sheep without knowing it. Well, yeah. Yeah, you could really. Various neighbours around, if, like the more questions you ask, the more you get, oh, yeah, well, we've seen such and such. Another neighbour, they, they don't actually keep sheep anymore when he, when he said he did have sheep. He said he went into a field, noticed all the sheep were bunched at the bottom of the field, looking a bit agitated. And as he looked up across the field, he could see there was a ewe struggling at the top of the field by the hedgerow. He said as he went up across the field on the quad, where cat as it was, got up from the sheep that was struggling, jumped onto the hedge, basically glared at him and got off the other side and was gone. Mm. He was the same as he. He was sort of very much, well, I'll ask a few people and see what they've seen. He said there was another chap down the road who said he'd seen it several times. He crossed the road in front of him. and Just various things. The old boy that farmed here, like I say before me, he was saying that his niece was out horse riding. I don't know whether she was actually hunting or what she was doing, but they basically said, well, they turned one up while they were out and they sort of gave chase across the moor on horseback. Okay. Was that a black one? I think that was black, yes. Yeah. yeah, because from past sightings that I'm aware of, Puma, Mountain Lion, the, the Sandy Brown ones have been seen in the Bodmin area as well. OK, should we now talk about the most recent incident on your land, which I think really did cement your interest, where you think you were probably just five minutes away from actually encountering this culprit? Could you take us through what happened that morning? It would have been beginning of December, quite frosty. I generally walk down through the farm in the morning with my dogs, just give the dogs a run and give me a bit of exercise before I go off and do my other work. And you can look along the line of the fields. And I noticed the sheep ran from one field to the next and they looked quite agitated. So I thought we'll go in there and see what is going on. So I had two dogs with me, went in through the gate to where they were and they were properly bunched up, you know, worried. That must have been the Monday morning. Well, the afternoon before, I was working in the yard of the other farm and my lad came over and we walked back together and we noticed then that that bunch of sheep had broken us, just a pair of sheep hurdles split in one of the fields just in the gateway, just as a temporary sort of boundary for them. And they'd split the sheep hurdles and five of them were in one field. The rest of them were huddled up in a, there's a drinking area at the corner of the field where they can get in the stream to drink and all 20 odd sheep that were the remainder of the group were completely huddled up in a bunch in the corner next to the stream. And I'd never even seen them go in there to drink, let alone go in there and be worried up. It was to the point of, or there's a dog about, or there's something about, which has caused these sheep to panic from where they were grazing earlier on in the day where I'd seen them to broke these sheep hurdles apart. Mm. And then the rest of them had, had shot down into this water and they took a bit of getting out from there. So anyway, Going back to the Monday morning, as I was walking down through, I'd had the night before then shut the sheep back in the two fields. As I was walking down through, they ran out. I just assumed, well, something is there chasing those sheep for them to be like that. And as I went into the field, like I say, they were bunched up like they were properly scared. So I went from the one field to the next field they could run in. And it was then I could see this sheep that was obviously dead. It was just stretched out in the field. And this sheep had literally been killed minutes. I'd have thought it was still warm. The blood hadn't congealed. It had blood down its legs. There was a bit of blood on the floor. None of that had congealed. It was still warm. And basically, it had two puncture marks in its throat, just over the three inches apart, big enough to get my little finger into the hole, bite mark or whatever, down so far as like the second joint on your finger. Well, my little finger would fit right in the hole, down to about a good inch and a half. You could see that the sheep hadn't struggled. 
there was still frost on the ground and you could see that sheep had spent the night there and all the other sheep that had ran away had spent the night next to that sheep. They'd slept in a hole so you could see clear patches in the frost where they'd been. So to my reckoning, whatever had killed that sheep had basically crept up on them. It would have just been after dawn. The sun would have just sort of started to come up. So whatever had taken that sheep had basically crept up on them as they slept and taken it by the throat, suffocated it. When we carried the ewe back up to the yard so we could actually properly investigate it, we sort of skimmed the throat out a bit so we could see exactly what it was. You could clearly see it was just two big puncture marks in the throat, one just sort of like lower nearer the jaw and one further back down. But what was interesting was up on its back, the only disturbed wool on that sheep, other than the obviously the bite mark in the throat, there was a patch right up on its back. And when we took that wool back, from there, so we could actually see the skin, there was three or four puncture marks, probably about an inch apart, that just looked like whatever had grabbed that by the throat to kill it had held it down with a foot. It just looked like it had been held down with a foot of a leopard or something like that, something that had actually yes. pinned that sheep to the floor while it suffocated it. But I say short of a little bit of struggle, you could see where the blood had sprayed. You know, it had obviously gone through an artery and it had sprayed blood down its legs. But there was no struggle, no mess. You know, we've had dogs get in with our sheep before and the mess they make, they sort of tear at everything. They they run the sheep around. This was killed where it slept, basically. Yeah, I think it is interesting to compare the normal behaviour of dog worrying and dog impacts with how clinical the impact was from what you've just described. I think to me what really was the sort of extra clincher was the photos of the pinning it was obviously grappled down and pinned very spiky pin marks well definitely yeah the chap that does some work for me I, I sort of said to him i said well there's marks on its back and i don't think he believed me until he actually saw them and it was like well what else does that nothing does that technically a dog could have clamped that you at the windpipe i've been into working dogs for years we've always had lurchers and I've seen well-trained lurchers taking deer down before it was banned and everything else. And I've seen dogs being really clinical. And like you say, they are in, they take the windpipe and they are down. But I've not seen dogs sneak up on something where it's obviously been lying at night and just take it by the throat. And like I say, on measuring how wide that bite was and the depth of the actual penetration into the sheep, I had a hunterway dog and that's quite a big dog. When you measure her bite across the top jaw, she's barely two and a half inches. Yeah. This was three inches. Obviously, you know, the sheep could have contracted a bit. It could be slight variation in that. You didn't have the neck was bent or anything. So obviously it could exaggerate the bite, but it just didn't stack up. To me, there was nothing else it could have been. Sure. And like you say, to have that pinning on the back as well, I'd say that was a good 95% plus that that was a cat kill. And I don't think there could be anything else. Yeah, and I think you were saying to me at the time on emails that the rest of the flock were not too spooked, whereas normally if it's a dog that's on the rampage, they do get to see it and experience it, and they're spooked for a while after, whereas your flock were largely presumably unaware. Maybe they had to flee a bit. I checked them, that was in the morning. When I checked them over the evening, they were bunched up then, and they were right down the bottom of the field, and they were bunched tightly the only way i can describe you know if you're watching like nature documentaries and they're sort of bison or buffalo they form like that defensive circle yes they were almost like that i literally walked right up to them in the field and they're, they're ewe lambs so they're not the quietest sheep and i could pretty much walk straight up to them and it was like the ones on the outside were turning and turning and they wanted to get onto the inside they're used to dogs to me it was like they were thinking something else is about and you have that feeling sometimes like something's not right mm. and you can't put your finger on it. And you almost, I know obviously with what had happened in the morning, you're thinking, well, is this a cat about, is it here? It is sort of playing on your mind, but I did just have that feeling. I thought, well, you know, they're on edge. They obviously know something's on, but then yeah. the following day they were spread out, not a care in the world, really. It's often, not always, but often it's when the cold weather starts in sort of November, mid to late November, that people like me get reports of suspected cat impacts on sheep, mm. uh, on ewes. It does seem that it's the colder weather that triggers that prey switching. It's easy, isn't it? They are just there in a field. I suppose they're not used to being predated on at all, are they? They're just lied there for yeah. the night, just wide open. We've got big hedges. 
there's fields below that field covered in scrub. There's a fairly mm. large gorge that runs up through that farm, splits the farm in half, which goes basically right up to the forestry. So anything could just stroll in completely under cover. You'd never know what was there. Why is it the frost? Is it that the rabbits go to ground more in frosty weather? There must be something that triggers the cat. It's got to be something about taking easy prey. Yeah, but they could do that any time of year. Why is it the cold, frosty weather? Yeah, whoever they do just think, well, I have got to eat today, and that is an easy target. Why go up into the woods and chase around for ages or lie in wait for a roe deer which might not come when I can walk into a field and pick a sheep up, you know, easily? Well, there are several answers to that, to be honest. One of them is that it's the endorphin response. The tissue on deer would be far better quality for, and they've evolved on wild ungulates like deer, and they've evolved on moving targets to sort of ambush something Mm. like a deer in the shadows, if you like. And they know that's a better quality meat. They know they want the endorphin. Because if you look at a deer carcass, as well as the rich organs that they prioritise, they shear through to the rich organs, of course. But it's the leg muscles that really are neatly picked away. And I think that's the endorphin response that the deer is showing in its, in its tissues. I'll tell you what we have noticed with deer, or as, as it happens without deer, when we took on the ground, in the years that we've lived here, all the time we look straight into that ground that we have taken on, and we've always noticed a herd of red deer in and out of their regular clockwork, without fail. Mm. Winter evenings, you'd see red deer, hinds and, and sort of yearling calves, up on the edge of the hill, just taking in the last of the winter sun, bit of a feed before they go into the woods for the night or whatever. Mm. We've seen next to none, there was a herd of, well, a good dozen would float in and out of there. And the chap that lives in the house now, he said before, he said, well, he always used to see stags would come out and lie out in the fields. He said he just hasn't seen the number of red deer. Interesting. They can obviously move. They're not domesticated in any way. So there's nothing to stop them moving on. But it just struck me as strange. Well, all the time we've been here for the last eight, nine years or so, you've seen them without fail. And then all of a sudden, the numbers aren't there. Yeah. I think back into last year, early part of this year, we've seen two hinds and two yearling calves up there. And of course, the cats would get to know where the calving was. If there's a key area where a herd deer, like red deer and fallow deer, routinely in sort of May, June, drop their young, then the cats would get to know that and be ready for that. We used to see roe as well, purely roe and red here. You know, we haven't got fallow, we haven't got muntjac, the smaller species and that. But we have got roe and we always have had significant numbers of roe to the point that you could pretty much guarantee that if you walk down the length of that farm, any day, you would see a roe deer somewhere. Well, for the last three, four months, I have not seen a deer, full stop. Interesting that you've not come across a suspicious possible cat impact deer carcass, because I would have thought you might do in time. We found one red carcass a few years after we moved in here. But to be fair, it was so far gone that you couldn't tell whether it had been killed or what had happened to it. They need to be fresh, don't they? Yeah. That's it. So, yeah. yes, yeah. We, we have found dead deer, but it could have just died of natural causes. It could have been shot. It could have been anything, really. What about the fact you haven't had a good visual of a cat on your land? You're very suspicious now and neighbouring people have told you things and you've had a couple of what seem to be nailed on impacts on you. Does it sort of frustrate you that you haven't seen a cat yet? I'd like to see one, just so I can... In an ideal world, I'd love to have a picture of one. So when I'm saying to someone I have had sheep killed by a big cat and people doubt me, I can say, well, what's this then? You know, you explain this to me. That's what I'd like to do. I do sort of find it frustrating. The way these sheep have been killed, you just think there's nothing else that would do that. Foxes, they tend to pull at everything. There's a bit of a mess. Dogs tend to pull at stuff. Birds do. Also, if it's dogs, they're not that stealthy and they're normally you would see and hear a dog. Exactly. When we had a dog actually got in with some rams I had, I kicked myself, to be honest, because I was up in the yard and I could hear this dog barking and barking and barking. And I sort of thought to myself, well, it's someone down by the river walking their dog, sort of playing. And it wasn't until I checked the rams later on in the evening, I thought, well, no, it wasn't actually playing. It was down there rounding my rams up and... You know, it had driven them into the river and one had to be shot and the others were sort of torn up around the back end and their legs were torn. Every sheep was affected. 
what I would say, Neil, though, it is reassuring for the farmers that big cats are being seen, but it doesn't appear that, unless somebody's keeping it quiet, that any of your neighbours have got problems like they did have back in the 80s and parts of the 90s when there did seem to be some ongoing predation, which was probably more than some farmers could stand, really, at the time. You don't seem to have anybody who's got a chronic problem locally. Not from what I've heard, no. I know of one person that had supposedly shot one. That's the second time I've heard that somebody had shot one. It was different people. But that one related back to predation. It was a case of they knew they had them on their land. They were basically very tolerant of it to the point they used to see it regularly and it would sit out on the rocks in the summer evening. We've got like tours and that behind us and they knew exactly where that cat would be sat out. And that was apparently tolerated up until the point it did start taking a few sheep so whether it was injured whether it had someone had a pot shot at it or anything that was supposedly dispatched on those grounds that yes it was fine up until the point it became a problem but of course some people would not get the chance to dispatch one even if they wanted to if if they felt it had been overdoing the killing how can you actually say well it's going to be there at that sort of time you're just chasing shadows really all the time aren't you The other thing for somebody like me who has to liaise with a lot of farmers and property owners is it becomes a real shame and an irony that the times when we get a chance to get some evidence and put trail cameras up are the times when the farmer or property owner's having hassle. You think, oh, this is good, I've got a chance, but it's not good for the farmer because he's losing ewes. But it's good that somebody like you consented to a friend of mine coming to put trail cameras up who's very experienced. And that's great because you're now potentially helping get evidence. And obviously, we'll be very careful how we would reveal anything if we got a good... At the moment, I've got a fantastic selection of squirrels and rabbits and foxes and and deer. But I said to you in an email, I managed to get a shot of one of my dogs who decided she was going to go off rummaging through the woods one night at about quarter to one in the morning. I got a lovely shot of her flat out running along. (laughs) You know her secrets now. That's it. Not what I actually want to see. It was eye-opening because that was the furthest camera away on the farm. So what are you doing up there? Yeah. How do you feel, though, that now that you've got some cameras out, does it feel a bit more comforting that you might find out what's going on? Yeah, definitely nice to know what's about. I don't know. Like I said earlier, it would be just nice to just have that picture where you could just say, well, that's what it is. I'm not being stupid by saying, well, nothing else kills sheep or whatever in this manner. The chap that I've taken the ground on from, he actually had a dead sheep, one of his sheep from a, a bit of ground further on that had died. And he brought that back into the yard, ready to be picked up by the, you know, the knacker man, the dead stock man the following day. Yeah. Left that in the yard overnight. And he said it was unbelievable the amount of consumption from that sheep or the amount of that sheep that had been consumed overnight. And that was right by the sheds. Not disturbing any dogs or anything. Yeah. No, nothing. Interesting. Yeah. It's good that you're now on the case to try and help get evidence for yourself and for the bigger picture. How many trail cameras do you feel you'd ideally need on your land, given its variation and the types of places a cat could hide out or a cat could walk at night? What would your preference be if the budget was no concern? At the moment, we've got five out Mm -hmm. and they're covering a fairly concentrated area at the moment. I'd say comfortably, you could probably put 15 to 20 trail cameras on this farm and not cover the same amount of ground twice and have a chance yeah where our ground actually goes into the forestry obviously there are tracks and trails through the forestry that you sort of think well yeah i'd I'd be inclined to think that those trails although they were made for obviously machinery to go through or whatever at some point if you actually had cameras on those trails you can guarantee because we often go up through the woods or whatever and you will see deer and that on those trails so if the deer are using the trails there's no resistance is there it is easy flowing passage it's quiet we're a very quiet area of cornwall we're quite lucky we don't have tourists milling around everywhere i think you're right those linear routes are exactly the types of routes that are used for trail cameras in the native countries of these cats both america and, and africa and asia i've sort of concentrated them now we did have two or three up in the woods sort of on the edge of the wood and I seem to just get a hell of a lot of squirrel. I I thought, well, I'll put one so it's set back in the woods. It's got that area of woodland between or at the edge of the field margin or the field boundary. Mm. So I thought, well, that would be a good idea for something to walk through there. 
Yeah, I think the tree lines and... I've got squirrels in all sorts of random positions uh, <laughs> that you wouldn't believe. Well, that's another reason not to set cameras on video. Video footage is really what is best. But if you set the cameras to video, you're going to get lots of squirrels and, and run the batteries. I think it's about pinch points where animals have got to be funneled in the landscape, linear routes, crossing points and tree lines. I've got one set on a corner where four fields meet and there's a bit of a stream that runs down the edge of the hedge and then through the gateway. So whatever travels that corner of the field, the sheep that my neighbour had years back broke down that hedgerow and it's never been put right. So we thought when we were putting the trail cams up originally, we thought that would be a really good place for any traffic to be going through. And it's surprising that's picked up a lot. Yeah, so that is a funnel. Finally, Neil, could we talk about attitudes? Before we get onto your perspective, I just wondered how you feel as a farmer. Some of the people on the podcast and elsewhere who say it's exciting. You know, these are wild animals. This is an alpha predator back in our ecosystem. How exciting. Now, I do understand that very much so. And I don't want to suppress that view from people. But as a farmer in the front line, do you think sometimes, well, you know, they wouldn't say that if they were in my perspective, in my position? I think for me, fairly small scale, I can tolerate the level of loss. You've got to think every sheep I lose is probably £100 down the drain. So there is that aspect to it. But hearing other people, what they've lost, you sort of think, well, you have really got a feel for those guys. Yeah. To me, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, I've always been interested in nature. Just having that thought that there's nothing else that can kill those sheep in that manner mm. is in my head. Well, I'd like to see it. I don't want to see that cat persecuted just for killing the odd sheep. I won't say I'm super happy about having sheep killed because I'm definitely not. But on the other hand, if I had that bit of footage or, or just a picture not a blurred image, like everyone says. Everyone, you know, everyone gets a blurred image. It's never clear. Yeah. If you could just get that image where you could say, well, actually, that is a big cat. And I've said for years there are big cats, and people have sort of said, no, 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 you know, and just sort of mocked you, brushed it under the carpet. So you do feel like you probably better not say anything. Mm. It, it'd be nice just to have that that evidence, to be honest. So I can see both sides of the argument. I can see. People that live in the towns, maybe they're not out, not as in touch with nature then as like a farmer would be, you know, spending probably 80, 90, 100 hours a week out on the land or in the countryside. You do get sort of very much at one with nature. So I could see people in towns and that if you suddenly said, well, there's big cats in the countryside, I could see them being very worried about it. Mm. From my point of view, it's just something else that you learn to live with. It's just very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting the impression that you feel it would be okay if the cats behaved themselves and we could manage the situation and we could compensate people properly who were suffering losses more than they, you know, more than they could afford. Absolutely. Like you say, if you have got your charity set up that's willing to pay out for it, I can't see the government ever putting their hands up and saying, yes, we have got a big cat problem. You will get X, Y, Z compensation. I can't see us getting to that point. But if you have got someone, like you say, that you can go to and say, well, I am having this problem. I am 90% sure that's what the problem is. Can you help me? I'm sure farmers would be delighted. And like you say, if, if they haven't got sort of DEFRA officials and stuff like that poking around their land, they'd probably be more inclined to work with you. And the police. I mean, I think it can be difficult for the police. The police haven't necessarily got the expertise or the resources and the capability and the capacity. In the rural areas, I think the policing is... I wouldn't say it's an issue because we're touch wood, a fairly quiet area. We don't have a lot of crime around here. But people I have spoke to who have suffered crime, it's like, well, the police haven't got time to come out and actually put their resources to that. So if you've mm. got someone just walking down the walking down the village street and I've seen a cat in a field, you know, how have they got the resources to actually investigate that properly? So like you say, if if you could put it into someone's hands and let them investigate it thoroughly who had the expertise to do it, I could see that being very beneficial, really. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. I certainly think we're onto something, talking it through this way and thinking that an independent body could pick up where government would find it difficult for various reasons. Mm. I mean, luckily, and it, maybe there are more farmers who are having problems than we know. One of the chaps, when I was listening to the podcast, one of the chaps said about 
you know, obviously he was having sheep predation there and the death were responsible. You know, what are you doing with your carcasses? It was, there is nothing left. And there is, yes. there is that sort of conflict. You know, you think, well, yeah. I should be getting the knacker man out to clear these carcasses up. And when you have literally just got a skeleton, yes, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Yeah, that was Wales, actually. So it wasn't Defra, it was a Welsh uh, no, Yeah, so, that, so there is that sort of conflict there all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You're sort of okay, depending on how it's managed and how the cats behave, basically, is your <laughs> attitude, Neil. Yeah, so I haven't got a huge amount of sheep. So if I was suddenly losing, you know, over the course of a month, if I lost like 20 sheep or something, but maybe getting on for a quarter of my flock, it would be obviously a different story. But to lose one... Well, I've, I think I'd worked out. I'd lost obviously these, these two recently. One that I could say was a definite. One was a maybe, and a couple over the last. I think one was 2017. One was 2012. I can sort of tolerate losses on that level. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't escalate. But you do get some evidence. I think that's my main thing. I would just like to see because I'm sure my kids have started doubting me as well because I sort of say, well, you know, I think we have got big cats and obviously shown them the evidence and this would do this and this would do that and shown them the difference between how different things do kill stuff or, or how different stuff looks when it is dead or, you know, stuff that's been scavenged and that. And I sort of say, well, this does point to what I'm saying. But I think there again, they would just like to say, we have got big cats. Daddy showed me a picture, one he got on his trail cam or, you know, we were out in the field and there was one walking across three fields over and we managed to get a good photo of it. Like, you know, that's that's what I'd like to see. Meanwhile, though, it's a good lesson in being very objective, isn't it? I think that's a good, you know, being disciplined and being careful and clinical and, and rigorous in your approach to investigating. I think those are good lessons in life mm. for all manner of reasons. And also, the chance to see something like a leopard-like cat or a puma-like cat is very rare in their native countries, as, as we keep saying on the podcast. So, and I think that's why some people are sceptical. I say I quite often point out you've got big cats living like on the edge of Mumbai and that, and mm. however many many million people live there, probably masses of those people will have never seen a leopard, and yet they're coming right into the edge of the city and taking dogs and taking pigs and. Yes, exactly. On the flip side of that, going back to the children, I don't want to put it in my children's heads that we have got big cats, you're at risk every time you go outside, because part of the idea of us taking on like the farming sort of life was for our children to be almost like we used to be when we were growing up. You know, they're like PlayStation children. They're, they like to go out. Mm. My boy's quite into his shooting. He's got his own dog. He likes to go off with his dog and they like to be out in the mm. yard on their bikes and you know, it's just very relaxed. So I don't want it in their head that, you know, there's a big, horrible creature around every corner. I just want them to accept that they're there and we can all get on living together. It's no different to, obviously, we've got badgers on the farm. We've got foxes on the farm. It's no different, really. None of them want any conflict. Yeah. Yes, obviously, we're more likely to see a badger or a fox because there's however many thousands scattered across the country. But the chances of actually seeing a leopard or a puma when they could have a range of, I don't know, 100, 100 miles, whatever, yeah, as they're 50 range, square miles, yeah. It's a well, chance in a lifetime to see it, really, isn't it? Yes. And when they are about, they're super stealthy anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But also, I think it's, I guess it's growing up with that sense of taking precautions. You know, if you know something's about, you know, roughly to be a bit more streetwise and a bit more precautionary in some of the things you do, at, certainly at dawn and dusk, perhaps, as you grow up. Yeah. Are they getting that instinct? I'm always a bit scared. I <laughs> sound ridiculous. I'm, I'm sort of 42 and it's like, well, I wouldn't be over keen walking through the woods at night on my own for sure. We are, well, the woods form like a big part of our life. Our house pretty much backs right into them. I wouldn't be comfortable walking through there at night, let alone thinking, well, my children are going to be walking through there at night. Yeah. Um, so there is that element to it. But to be honest, I'm, you know, I'm quite happy out walking around the fields at night. My dogs are generally mm. out with me. Yes, I don't know. It's, it's just something, like I say, something that's there. You've got so much more chance of getting run over or there's so many dangers, isn't there, that you've got to be ever present in your life that do you really need to be worrying about something else? Like you said to me earlier, the lady that done the bit up in Lincolnshire, she's put a post on Facebook about seeing one or, or one was seen in a field of workmen work in the fields if it came to that that people are sort of being threatened 
it's a different story, isn't it? But like I say, something that's just living in the woods and keeping itself to itself, fine. But I, I would, <laughs> I would like to see it. <laughs> yes, great. Yeah. Is there any other final point you would like to make? Something we haven't covered, or a point you would like to emphasise? No, I just think that people have got to have an open mind on these things. These things are here. It's not a case of ifs or or maybes. I think they are here, and people just need to be fairly open-minded when people are saying that they have seen these things or they are having problems with them it's very easy to dismiss people nowadays especially with like the facebook generation and all that you know everything's on the internet and it's very easy to sort of dismiss people out of hand but when you do actually speak to people who are probably more sort of involved in like the countryside you know when you are speaking to farmers and that they don't need to lie to people you know if, if they've seen something that's out of place and they tell you it, it should be sort of taken as gospel, really. Especially when a lot of them don't volunteer it in the first place. It only crops up in conversation because you've asked them. You know, a lot of people don't volunteer this information. No, no, that's it. Like, so I've, I've spoke to a couple of good friends. I've had this sheep killed. Uh, and one of them said, oh, well, I had a sheep in very similar circumstances. Then I saw one out when I was lamping one night and we actually sort of tried to chase it with the quad, but it was gone in no time. And you speak to someone else, I spoke to my neighbour, he said he'd spoke to his father-in-law. Oh, he'd seen one crossing the road or crossing the main road, the main A30 that goes right down through Cornwall. When he told people, he was ridiculed. But it's like these are people that are spending 90-odd percent of their life out on the land. They know exactly what they're looking at. That's my take. (laughs) Well, it's so useful to chat it through with farmers, Neil. So I'm very grateful for you coming on and giving a farmer's perspective. And of course, we know that people in any camp don't all think alike. No, I was a bit taken aback, like I say, with the Facebook when they were saying about the people working in the fields. And then it was on to, oh, were they going to send hunting parties and that? And it's like, well, really? You've probably disturbed this cat on a kill or something in a field. The chances of actually seeing anything when you're out anyway are, are minimal. Yeah, and a hunting party is going to disturb it. It's going to be off miles away if it's uh, here's a commotion. So That's it. Yeah. I would just love to see it. And someone else's opinion is, oh, well, it's there. It's a big risk. It's got to go. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My dog's barking in the background. Maybe he's calling time. <laughs> Neil, <laughs> <laughs> Neil, we're so grateful for coming on Big Cat Conversations and giving us your perspective. Good luck with everything, Neil. And I hope to visit one day. And thanks ever so much. No, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Okay, just the one announcement before we sign off, and that is, if you've not done so already, go listen to Missing Panther. That's the name of a new podcast just started in Australia, all about big cat sightings there, and it's a really classy production. So good luck to Missing Panther and to Ben Reed and his team that produce it. I really recommend it, and I know people have enjoyed it and have been impressed who've listened to it already. Finally, for the next episode, we've got our first podcast pub evening. It's nice to have done the first one, so you can hear four people in a pub swapping notes about their big cat encounters, and these were from Oxfordshire, Shropshire, Gloucestershire and East Sussex. And amongst the things we talked about in the pub was the different types of land and situations in which big cats are seen. We could have gone on for two or three hours in that session, but we cut it down to one. Okay, take care everyone, thanks for listening, and all the best.